Blog Talk Radio. Faithful. This is The Long Road to Ruin, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge. And tonight, we are finally concluding our look at the Hunger Games movies. Last week, we looked at the Hunger Games proper, and uh, we looked at Catching Fire. We talked about uh, something specific about this show in particular. We talked about how we don't necessarily take the books into account when we're looking at the movies. We talked about, you know, the art of reviewing a movie in and of itself and not making comparisons to books and whatnot. Uh, We talked about the idea that um, culture can be borrowed, themes and ideas can be borrowed, plots can be borrowed. And if you're Rob Zombie, whole songs can be borrowed. Anything can be borrowed and built upon. <laughs> One should not get caught up in these things. Enjoy what's in front of you if it is, if it is indeed enjoyable. Um, so tonight we will conclude our look at the Hunger Games by looking at Mockingjay Part 1 and Mockingjay Part 2. Uh, with me tonight, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Hi, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not. And greetings from the Sean Cave. Well, correction, it's not the Sean Cave. I'm actually between Sean Caves right now. Greetings from the Steph Cave. Hi, Steph. Uh, no, she's, uh, she's not home. She's, uh, she's actually closing tonight. So uh, it is just myself, Luke, and Tessie. Ah, Wondering in the girlfriend's apartment while she's away. I like it. Um, uh, yeah, so, so, so if you hear me every so often, just... I just exclaim, knock that off. It's because uh, Tessie has been chasing a fly around the living the, around the living room while I've been trying to unwind with an hour or so of gaming before the show. And she's kind of clawing into the drapes a little bit. So, Except for when she yells at me. She knock that off. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a feline, semi-step parent. So obviously, you know, they're they're not my kids, so I I can't touch them. I can't discipline them too much. All I can do is yell at them a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, no beating. Don't beat the cat. Um, oh no, okay. I, I I wouldn't do that. Bite thy tongue. All, the only thing that I have that I have broached as a possibility is I've said once or twice that Steph and I might do well to invest in uh, some air powered marshmallow shooters. There you go. All right. Um, 
as much you know, we spent a lot of time last week uh, sort of talking about talking about the movies. This week, I kind of want to just jump right into things. Um, I will say this. I want to say this at the top of the show so that I've, you know, so that it's covered, we said it, we dealt with it, and we can move on and not deal with it anymore. Um, and I want to address a good friend of the show, a good friend of mine, my co-host on Wednesdays when we review movies, and the host proper of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA show, uh, Mr. Robert Winfrey. Um, now, he indeed has read the books from what I understand. And uh, we have been going back and forth over this idea. And it, it's... It, We'll call it our topic of the night, kind of like what we did last week, but we won't spend 45 minutes on it. And that is uh, this idea that uh, Hollywood should take the last installment of something and split it into two parts. And to my recollection, the the first example in modern history of this, uh, most modern history, most recent modern history, would be uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, but the book is roughly seven million pages long, and it's <laughs> and it's very, from what I understand, and it's very, very, very uh, in depth. There's a lot going on in that book, and it needed to be broken into two parts. Uh, Twilight had a lot going on with it too, uh, the last book. But as I've said in multiple said in multiple podcasts, and was said on the Twilight podcast when we covered it. Yes, they they should have broken into the two parts, just not the two parts they broke it into. That's a whole other thing. Well, let's uh, give us uh, just out of curiosity. Give us the uh, and look it up on Wikipedia if you have to. Give us the tale of the tape, if you will, Mark. Uh, how many pages was Deathly was Deathly Hollows? How many pages was uh, Breaking Dawn? And how many pages was Mockingjay? Let's throw in how many pages was The Hobbit while we're at it, because that was the next example I was going to use. Harry Potter. I don't. I don't know if The Hobbit would really be the best example necessarily, because you got to keep in mind, originally that was going to be split into a very manageable two parts, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, Peter Jackson decided, no, I want to go ahead and shoot the appendices stuff. So as long as we're making two, let's just go ahead and make it a hat trick. So I'm just kind of, well, also because it was written in a different time, so you sort of expect it to be longer. It's a a bit more understandable, whereas I feel like with Harry Potter and Twilight, we're at least comparing YA to YA to YA. Okay, fair enough. Um, so your first question, let's go with the U.S. Uh, printing, 759 pages for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. Wow, that's a long one. Yeah. I've read a few. I, um, I once read a book about, uh, a, a, um, about the Eisner years in Disney, and it, was, and it was that long, and I literally spent 24 hours reading that book back to back. Um, okay. Twilight, Breaking Dawn. Breaking Dawn. Look. Uh, there we go. Uh, 756 pages. Okay, so that's still kind of a monster. I'll say this for Harry Potter, though. I've I've never read 
the Twilight series, and I'll feel it's straight up achievement unlocked if I die, and I can still say that. But you know, without comparing and without having read the um, the Hunger Games trilogy either, I can say that I would be willing to bet that the 789 pages of Deathly Hollows probably moves along at a pretty brisk little pace. So getting to the point of all of this, Mockingjay, 390 pages. Um, but the thing that oh. uh, Robert... <laughs> Hang on one second. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> one second. One second. <laughs> Robert Winfrey and I have been sort of butting heads on this because uh, he keeps, you know, his one argument over and over and over again is they really shouldn't have split this into two parts, and and th- and that's what you know I, you're reacting to as well. Is you're talking about a less than 400 page book? Why are we doing this in two? Um, here's what I'm going to say to that: having not read any of the books, right? I have no basis of comparison. All I have to judge whether or not there's enough here. This is why I brought up The Hobbit. Um, all I have to judge whether or not there's enough here to constitute two films are the films I saw. When I watched Mockingjay Part 1, was there enough going on in the movie for me to say, yes, this was a fully formed, fully realized movie, and it deserved its own, uh, it deserved its own airing versus... Uh, something like uh, the Desolation of Schmaug and the Battle of Five Armies and saying, no, as we, the conclusion that we did come to, there's a lot we can cut out of those movies and make them one movie. This is ridiculous. Um, while I'm not arguing with anybody, and, I, and I'll shut up after this, while I'm not arguing with anybody that the, that the studio should not have cut it in half, I'm going to go ahead and make the argument that what I saw were two fully realized movies that deserve their own time and airing. Now, that's up for debate. Yeah. Maybe we'll, yeah. And we'll talk about that. That's part of the well, discussion yeah, of these when, movies. When you and I were talking online earlier while I was watching Mockingjay Part 2, I brought up something that is kind of daring in terms of the fact that I don't think film was actually the ideal medium to adapt this at all. I mean, obviously it did really, it did really well, but in terms of my own case, uh, I actually could make, could think of about three or four other media. Uh, this could have been adapted to that would have told the story a lot more effectively with a lot more freedom as far as pacing while still staying just about like 99% like Walter White certified pure to the source material. I mean, like I said, we we can talk about that after we've talked about, after we've talked about the actual movies though, because I know we got to get to those first, but I, just, I, I wanted to set up the discussion that way. Um, I'm going to be coming at these from the angles of I thought they were worthy movies. I I, I like them. I really oh, like Mockingjay Part One. Um, I really like Mockingjay Part One, and a lot of my analysis is going to go to sort of supporting the idea that it deserved its own movie. Um, and while the MIT people tripping over themselves to tell me no 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 you had to have seen this book, Wolf Boy, I, again, and I'm going to say this one last time. 
All I have to judge is what I saw, and what I saw looked like a full movie to me. So there you have it. I will Fuck say this. Fuck your book. <laughs> Fuck I them. <laughs> they don't fucking matter. I will say it again. If you have to say that in order to understand what is going on in your goddamn movie, you have either adapted it incompetently or you never should have adapted that particular in the first place. Um, what are the reviews we never again have to have this discussion when we talk about when we talk about a franchise. May everybody who listens to our show hopefully listen to this first and get that through their thick fucking their thick fucking heads. Yeah, I don't see that happening. Um, I want to start. I want to start here with Mockingjay Part One. Uh, I want to start with a criticism, and then I'll go back through the plot because I don't think the criticism is. I don't know. I don't know if fair is the right word. I think I just. I think I just don't like it. Um, it, it sort of reminds me of a lot of the criticisms of Batman v Superman, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. God knows I'm done with that. But, but it was a very similar vein um, that was that was hacked into with these criticisms, and it was the following. Not enough action. Not enough action happening in Mockingjay Part 1. And I suppose for a YA action adventure series, I guess, um, not enough action is probably a valid criticism. But I like to go to a movie, and now, now granted, if you, if, you, if you pitch me a comedy and it's, you know, and it's, a, uh, it, it, it's a mournful love story that ends in tragedy, I'm probably going to be a little irritated, and that's going to affect my review of the movie. Hey, wait a minute! You sold me a uh, you sold me a false bill of goods here. Um, but I think there's room in life to look at a film and kind of let it be and judge it on its merits. So, right. just like Batman v Superman, where people were like, "Oh, this movie isn't fun. There's not there's no there's no fun to be had here." Um, a similar thing. There's no there's not enough action in Mockingjay Part 1, and therefore people didn't like it, and then drew the conclusion it didn't deserve its own movie. Uh, I thought the movie did a very, very good job of, show, of telling the story of, of, of two camps issuing propaganda against one another, and, you know, dueling propaganda. Um, I thought the movie did a very, very good job of telling the story of how media is used in war. And so I don't know if you need a lot of action for that. Um, I'll go ahead and, and hush up for a moment and let you sort of catch up and give your thoughts. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I agree in all of the above. And it, it, folks, stay with me here because we live in an era of rampant fanboyism. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean you can't acknowledge of why it exists and that there is merit to its existence. Okay? It means you can at least acknowledge why it is that other people like it and say, okay, yeah, I can see how that's a fairly worthy production even if it wasn't exactly my cup of tea, even if it didn't appeal to me. Um... And that goes that goes for anything. That especially goes for the fact that I I fully expect 
that this coming weekend, every single uh, let, let's say let's say about eighty five to ninety percent of the negative cynical remarks cynical remarks toward Captain America Civil War are going to come from one of th- from one of three sources. Okay? Source number one actually four. Let's let, let's say four here. No three. Three, yeah. For the sake of argument we'll go with these three sources. Number one DC fanboys who were butthurt and bitter about the fact that not every everybody liked Batman very Superman, not Justice League. Number two, Gavin Napier. Number three, Pat Mullen. <laughs> you you don't have to like every to like everything, but as we pointed out last week, you're not liking something does not negate somebody else's enjoyment nor does somebody else's enjoyment diminish from yours. Not at, not at all. Good example here. Personally, Mockingjay Part 1 was not a bad movie. It just wasn't one that I particularly liked or enjoyed, in part because there's a real whiplash effect when you're going from the action and adventure and excitement of Catching Fire to a movie that is really a lot of very tense world building. It's, mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of it feels like what in television would be called a bottle episode, where you take the main characters and you shut them all up in the same enclosed, enclosed space, and most of the show is them talking to each other. Now, were I to go back and watch it now, having watched the whole series with a little more perspective on it, would I probably enjoy it more? Yes, I would. However, it's just a very sudden come down from the movie that preceded it, so much so that you're left kind of jarred and wanting more of what you just got, more of what you enjoyed the first two movies so much for, and more of what gets turned up, if not up to 11, at least to like a 9.5 in Mockingjay Part 2. You liked it, I think, a lot more than I did. Uh, I will say that it's definitely some of Jennifer Lawrence's finest acting of the series, in part because she has to slow down a little bit and her performance consists of much more than a lot of the physicality and battle scenes and whatnot from the first two movies. And it demonstrates the surprise of absolutely no one that in addition to being able to handle the action of both movies, she more than had the chops to really bring out the character, especially in these last two really challenging installments. It helped that she was surrounded by strong performances from everybody else, including, um, I'm sorry, I don't have my notes right in front of me, and I'm forgetting my casting. Uh, Liam Hemsworth played Gale, right? Yes. Okay, who was it that played PETA? Help me out here. Yep, yep, yep. I'm totally, bl- I'm totally blanking on him. Josh 
Hutcherson. Josh Hutcherson. Thank you. I, I shouldn't have forgotten that. Um, Josh Hutcherson uh, did a, was kind of magnificently unhinged, especially in the last moments of the movie. Uh, uh, Julianne Moore uh, turned in a very solid performance in Mockingjay Part 1. You, of course, really got... Liked really liked her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, she just got better and better throughout the last two movies. Um, and by better and better, I mean she became more and more unsettlingly despicable um, in terms of really breaking down the barriers of we really have no good guys to root for here. Everybody is either forced to do horrible things or just outright chooses to do them. Uh, you got one of tragically the last great performances of a true Hollywood great in Philip Seymour Hoffman, who fortunately was able to finish up the bulk of his shooting um, prior to finishing the last movie so much so that, and this is one time it is worth pointing out a bit of a difference between the last movie and the book, um, the last two movies in the book actually, is the fact that in order to make up for the scenes that he wasn't able to shoot, they had to perform some rejiggering where some of his dialogue was instead transferred over to other characters and it made it so that by the time the movie was over, uh, you didn't really feel that his death had made an impact, which I thought was very much a, a job well done by Gary Ross and Lionsgate and the writers' turnaround. But overall, uh, Mockingjay Part 1 is carried by some incredibly strong performances. Um, People who really brought out the substance of the movie and, and really deepened the world in a necessary fashion prior to getting back to the action in part two. And in part two, you got the best of both worlds. Uh, you got the uh, sort of urban jungle, urban survival of campaigning through, through the Capitol to make their way to President Snow. And at the same time, you also got the socio-political political intrigue and the tragedy that really drives home uh, the price of rebellion, the price, the price of war, and that the old adage rings true. How, how does it go? Um, uh, one man's freedom, one man's freedom fighter is another man. Yeah. Is another man's terrorist. Uh, so a very, very well done con- well done conclusion, and it's interesting in that I think this is the first franchise we've covered where during the lesser installments, I'm forced to say I might not have enjoyed it, but at the same time, I understand why you had to set it up that way, and I actually wouldn't have you do it any differently. Yeah, that was um, in the discussions that I've had setting up, um, leading up to this uh, this podcast, I said, you you had to do that step down, that slowdown from catching fire because you were introducing the rebellion and the rebellion had previously had no part in the first two movies. 
you needed time to set those up. You needed time to set up Julianne Moore. So, you know, you needed time to build her up so that she can fall in the next movie. Um, you needed to set up stakes. But, the, you know, the first, the first two movies are very much about Katniss and her reaction to the games and her ability to survive and her relationship with PETA. The next two movies are all about this war. And what people, what's happened in other movies that I've reviewed is that um, if The Phantom Menace being a, uh, not The Phantom Menace, Revenge of the Sith being a really good one to point out, I like something that Mike Skokoska said in the, um, in the uh, Mr. Plinkett reviews, uh, a war with no consequences. Uh, you know, George Lucas just puts you in the middle of this war. You have no idea what's going on. I mean, if you don't have any prior knowledge of the Star Wars world, you're just sort of thrown together in the middle of a, of a senseless battle, and you don't understand what the stakes are. You don't understand what they're fighting for. You don't have any emotional attachment. See, what people don't understand, and it's it's, it's and while I'm not picking on kung fu movies as, as such, I know people love them, and I don't want to have that debate now. But the reason why I don't enjoy Kung Fu movies is unless you set up an emotional tie to the violence that you're watching, to the fighting, to me, it's like, it's like watching porno. And after well, a while, yeah, that, the novelty that, wears off. That, that goes back to a line by Bruce Lee in one of my favorite Kung Fu movies of all time. I, I believe it, and God of all people, I know it's going to be either, either Robert's or Andrew Graham, who are gonna who are gonna chime in here and correct me? I believe it was and it was Enter the Dragon uh, when he's engaging in this kind of school of hard knocks tutorial of a young of a young student. He he very slowly and patiently tells him we need emotional content. Uh, yes. He it's well okay uh, another example here. It's something that Japan does very well in a lot of their entertainment, especially in terms of their movies and their anime, from what I've seen. Is is it ultra-violent? Oh, yes. Oh, fuck, yes. It's violent. But if you're watching it in the right frame of mind, um, where, number one, you understand that just in general, Japan with a very... Uh, isolationist and kind of independent, sometimes even somewhat standoffish culture toward the rest of the world has very much, hey, fuck you, we're going to do things our do things our way, and we really don't have to answer to your standards kind of approach to everything that makes them very unique in the first place. But also, if you're watching it in that in that right frame of mind, you also understand that the violence is a part of the characters. It's there for a reason. It is that brutal for a reason. And there's something that you can kind of see reflected about the characters in terms of how violent it is. Um, and I, I would even say that a lot of Eastern Kung Fu movies, if you watch those as opposed to a lot of what's more popular here in the States, that's something else that comes through is it's not just fighting for the sake of fighting. There's often um, a, tale of, uh, a tale of revenge or inner conflict or uh, human spirit. 
that uh, that kind of, that kind of comes through in that. Um, there's uh, okay, the thirty sixth chamber of Shaolin, which um, I I'm sorry, a big rousing fuck, a big bag of you to nerdist today for putting that in their schlock and awe series um, on the website because I don't consider it schlock at all is very much just that. It's about uh, kind of the the orphan son of a village that's absolutely ravaged and visits and makes his way to a nearby Shaolin temple because he wants to learn Kung Fu, at first because he wants to take out his vengeance. And he wants to kind of ascend right to the top and go and when they ask him what chamber he wants to start learning in, uh, he said, I want to start at the 36th chamber. You know, he wants to go right to the hard, really, to the hard, really fun stuff because he thinks he's going to become a master that way. Well, <laughs> he promptly washes out immediately, and humbled, he goes down and starts in the first chamber and works his way all the way up. And there's a lot more story that comes out that comes after that, too, to where he's a completely changed man by the end of the movie. It's one of the things that I like. Okay, you want to know what is probably the most underappreciated thing about the Marvel movies? For everybody who complained, they're made for kids. They're bright and colorful and silly and fun for little babies. And DC is for the grown folks. Well... Okay, fuck, fuck, fuck a duck, screw a kangaroo. You want to know what the other thing you're missing is? Those movies display character progression, especially in terms of Iron Man and Cap, in that those characters have changed. They had to evolve from somewhere. You have to... It's like starting off a negotiation with a price that's either too high or too low. You haven't left yourself anywhere that you can go from you can go from there. You're just locked into that one position. Over the course of the Captain America movies in particular, we have seen Steve Rogers go through some truly jarring conflicts that have tested the mettle of his characters, of his character. And now it's about to pit him against quite literally about the only friends and true allies that he has in the world who are going to be severely at odds with not only him, but his lifelong childhood best friend. You couldn't have just started there. You had to have some place from which you could chart that progress and watch either the rise and fall. It's what I didn't really enjoy about Man of Steel, and it's why I have no intention of seeing Batman very Superman in theaters is because you just kind of started Superman off right in descent into assholery. <laughs> um, you didn't really do anything like Dan Jurgis in the comics to really build up to the fight with Doomsday to give it all the significance and all the subtext given his history and everything that's been established, that makes that meaningful. No, no. You just want to throw it out there as, meh, doomsday. Um, 
Even Christopher Nolan, when he made The Dark Knight, he took Bane and made Bane mean something to the development of Batman. Now, I'll grant that David Goyer and Christopher Nolan didn't necessarily execute that as well as they possibly could have probably, but they mostly got that part right. You have to have some place to go. These movies, they gave Katniss some place to go, some place from which she could eat. She could evolve. They established the relationships with the characters so that we could feel what she felt when they died. They forced her into some unthinkable situations that if you put, in, if you put yourself in her shoes, you couldn't imagine her believing at the start of the movie that one day these would be some of the choices she would have, she would have to make. You can, kind of, you can kind of see it in her eyes that she is not the same the same girl who stood up at the reaping and volunteered and volunteered in order to save Prim that she would one day be standing there first with her arrow trained on President Snow spoilers by the way if you haven't seen the movie yet and then albeit kind of predictably um, after a long long stare down with him turns her arrow upward and assassinates I, I forget what Julianne Moore's character's name is. I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Goin, or Goin, <laughs> yeah, or right. Goin, or Freud Levin. Uh, okay, President Goiter. That's a, that's what we're going to call it, President Goiter. Works amazing. Um, President Clarice Starling. That is who she is. <laughs> turns and guns down. Turns and as long as we're going with a bird theme, she is President Starling. And all of a sudden, turns her bow upward. Guns down President Starling. That's been the beauty of it. Um, but anyway, I've, I've been rambling long enough. Let's get into summarizing the plot of these two movies, shall we? We shall. Um, so, <clears throat> I've got my wiki page. I'm just going to pull the curtain back here. I've got my Wikipedia page right open here. Um... So Katniss is rescued from the 75th Hunger Games along with Beatty and Finnick and then taken to District 13. Um, she's reunited with her mom and her sister, uh, and that's when she meets uh, President Clarice. <laughs> or President Goin, Goin, Goin. President Starling. President Starling, right. I like President, President Clarice. Just so I can keep doing that. Um, we want her to be the Mockingjay. <laughs> she throws a tantrum because uh, they left Peter to die, uh, presumably, and she wanted Peter to live, and she was willing to give her life for him. Um, and he's, golly knows where he is, so she at first says no to being the Mockingjay. Um, however, uh, after they, she finds that Peter is alive because they're using him to do uh, their own series of propaganda uh, videos. She's and she ends up also seeing. Um, I think uh, she ends up going to one of the, one of the war sites and seeing what the capital is doing. She says, "Okay, I'll go ahead and be the Mockingjay." Um, they initially try to stage some of the videos. If that doesn't work, Woody Harrelson says, "No, no, no, no. She, we need to get her sort of in the moment." Uh, the Capitol bombs the hospital. She happens to be there when that's happening. 
Um, and so she gives a big speech. Speech. Uh, the speech sort of ignites more riots, more strikes, more uh, rebellion, etc. Um, certainly turns the turns the fire up on the revolution. Um, after the uh, so um, after seeing a, a Peta on TV again. Um, she, she, she sings that. Let me just read this. After seeing a weakened PETA on a TV propo, the team returned to District 12, where Gail reports on District, 12, District 12's destruction. Katniss is filmed singing The Hanging Tree. Soon after, hundreds of protesters in District 5 are singing the same anthem. They launch a suicidal human wave against the hydroelectric dam that is the capital's primary source of electricity. Next. The attack destroys the dam and causes a power cut in the capital, forcing the capital to revert to backup power generators and weaken their ability to broadcast propaganda. Um, PETA gives one final interview and uh, a quick warning that the Capitol is going to bomb District 13. This is actually a ploy to try to get District 13 to show themselves, which ends up not working because Julianne Moore is not a moron. So, um, this, this sparks an effort to go and save PETA from the, uh, from the Capitol which is successful because much because President Snow is the emperor and it just allows it to happen. Uh, what, what they don't know is that they've conditioned PETA to want to murder Katniss, which he tries to do in glorious fashion at the end of the movie. That's my favorite part of the movie, by the way. Just, you know, that turn, you know, he walks in the room, he sort of slumped over, and that sudden reveal of this hateful face and then he jumps up and, and throws her into the wall and strangles her and all of that. I thought that was great. I'd wait for that the whole movie. Um, but yeah, the whole, so the whole movie is made up of essentially uh, back and forth promos between, kind of like wrestling, between Katniss and PETA, culminating in uh, PETA giving one last warning to the rebels. The rebels prepare for it. They go and save him, and he in turn tries to murder Katniss. Um, and that is where we leave, uh, we leave our heroes. So, as I said, this was a movie about the revolution. Um, this was a movie that uh, needed to set up the greater world that these people are all living in. They also needed to introduce characters that were going to be, that were going to have significant uh, events happen to them in the next movie. And it does a very, very good job of building them up so that when those things do happen, that they're, they're paid off. Um, you actually have an emotional attachment. Uh, the other thing is there's a relationship between Coin and Katniss uh, that is then turned on its head in the next movie, which, again, you can't do any of those things, or if you do, you do them poorly, if you don't set it up in this movie. So um, I go back to my initial my initial statement of you need time for there to be the dueling promos. You need time to show the revolution. You need time to get to know uh, the, the coin character. Um, and you need, you need to see the arc that Peter goes on so that, at, you know, so when they leave you at, at the end with him trying to kill Katniss, that again is meaningful other than just the shock of it all. 
Um, I actually thought that was a that was a good conclusion to the movie. A statement was made to me that that's not where they should have cut it off. They should have cut it off with spoiler alert, uh, where they kill Katniss's sister. And I said, but that. And I thought, okay, well maybe in the book that makes sense, but in terms of how the movies are laid out, that's far too that's far too late. This that and has, and and killing the sister had nothing to do with the story they were trying to tell in this first movie. Uh, Coin doesn't go crazy in this movie. <laughs> she goes nuts in the next movie. It's a subtle kind of nuts, but it's still nuts. Um, in this one, she's a, you know she's a sympathetic leader, uh, and you know she starts out doubting Katniss, and then she comes to uh, to appreciate Katniss. It's the next one where you learn she never wanted her in the first place, and she sees her as a, as a threat, and is doing all kinds of manipulations in order to secure her place of power. But that's that movie. And it needs to be that movie. And the killing of the sister belongs to that story. It doesn't belong to this one where, they're, where the story is the, uh, the, the relationship uh, in terms of the propaganda videos between Katniss and PETA. Um, and that, I don't have a whole lot to to add to the, to the discussion other than to say, I like, as part of my pre- uh, preparation for these podcasts, I like to go and watch the honest trailers just because it's, it's mm-hmm. another form of criticism and they make me laugh. But I like to see what other people uh, criticize about these movies. And one of the things was, oh, you know, it's a lot of staring. <laughs> it's a lot of staring. It's a lot of Jennifer Lawrence. Um, but they, they felt like the movie just sort of drags in places. And I, not to me, I thought, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm appreciative of the 70s style of shooting a movie and leaving the camera still and letting you get absorbed in the atmosphere. And maybe in today's ADHD-centered world, it's hard for people to do that. But, um, and, may, and maybe I'm not being fair because I was also doing laundry at the time. So maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention. Um, but I, I thought the film moved at a brisk pace and told the proper story. So... Um, that's my thought here. Your uh, conclusions here on Mockingjay Part 1 or anything left on that? Well, when it comes to Mockingjay uh, Part 1, uh, yeah, I, th- I think yeah, we pretty much said about everything we really, uh, we really need to. And I'm with you. I, I love long takes. I, I, love, di- I love dialogue. Um, it's why... I, I just sort of have to roll my eyes at some of the people who talk about how they didn't like uh, any of Inglorious Bastards or certain parts of Kill Bill because all they're doing is sitting there talking. I don't want to watch that. There's too much talking, too much di- too much dialogue, too much go, too much going on. I like that, and I, I like that a great, I like that a great deal. In fact, if if there's one thing that I really felt that I really kind of felt was a little underwhelming about the first two movies, it was the fact that you weren't able to pick that much up in dialogue from that many of the characters, at least not much that really developed them. Um, Because the first movie was really low on a lot, low on interaction between a, lot, between a lot of them, so much so that, well, you, even you got kind of concerned about, well, what's the deal with 
Katniss and PETA again? Did I miss something? Uh, second movie, uh, second movie improved on that. Uh, you got a lot more that you got a lot more that was fleshed out. But one thing that I think is kind of interesting, it feels like sometimes in this movie, like when they were casting, it was almost like they had two sides of the board and went okay, who are we casting for their ability to handle the physicality and the action, and who are we casting purely for acting ability? Um, you know, you know for, for, for whom do we, not, do we kind of not exactly care quite as much whether they can really handle, handle their lines? Uh, because I feel like that's kind of where you sort of get the difference between watching Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore and Donald Sutherland and, to a far lesser extent, cats like Wes Bentley. Um, uh, help me out here. Um, the, 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 the guy who plays uh, Beattie, um, he was also in Casino Royale. I'm blanking on his name. Um, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. I almost said Jeffrey Ross, and then I went, no, 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 that's the Celebrity Rose guy. Jeffrey Wright, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I love Jeffrey Wright. Damn near anything he, he's in, I will sit up and pay, and pay attention. Um, but they were able to to get across so to get across so much with dialogue and rightfully so because they were almost entirely and uh, oh and uh, Woody Harrelson as well as Hamish and Elizabeth Banks um as uh, Krusty the clown because I'm blanking on her name now too god damn it what is with me tonight Elizabeth um, Banks um yeah her character um, Effie Trinket. Effie Trinket. I'm making an ass of myself without blanking on character and actor names. Um, forcing myself to just make up the most probably on the surface disrespectful bullshit, even though I really enjoyed their performances. Um, but then you look at a lot of the other characters and you realize that they don't really get that much. In, in terms of in terms of dialogue, in terms of really of really needy lines, and that they're forced to convey a lot with you know, body language and in ver- and in very short bursts and in gestures and gestures occasionally. I don't I don't want to say that was a conscious thing because I, I doubt it was because. I mean, obviously, Jennifer Lawrence especially has proven to be one of the absolute gems of her generation of actresses, uh, hands down. I mean, it's like the, the, the Hunger Games got people's attention, and then once she had the eyes on her, she really was able to maximize it with movies like Silver Linings Playbook and 100% Proved to everybody. Oh no, I'm I'm no one trick pony. I'm I'm not Mila Jovovich here. <laughs> um, 
I can I can I can actually act. I can make with the words of, of smart making and care and character building. But yeah, over overall it was it's a hard movie to appreciate until you really understand why it's there. And then it might still try your patience a little bit in that you're really looking forward to the fourth movie returning to a lot of the intense action uh, that filled up about half or more of the first two. But I well, let me say there's... This. It's not like the first I, one I, was filled with action. I mean, you know, it takes a while to get to the Hunger Games, and when they finally get there, Katniss is in a tree for half of it. <laughs> I mean, um, this isn't, these aren't exactly the Fast and the Furious we're talking about here. You know, and it good isn't point. as if you, it, it, and it isn't as if they, you know, you you were tricked into going to a Fast and the Furious movie that turned out to be a think piece. I mean, I, I really don't understand the people who went into like, oh, I was expecting more action. Jesus, these are, you know, yeah, the second one had more stuff going on. Um, it was a lot more livelier of a picture. It's one of the reasons why I liked it. But I, but again, none of these are filled with these. Another example, these are not Lord of the Rings, you know, where you have uh, bits of dialogue and plot development followed by a large action set piece. You know, that we have one action set piece in The Hunger Games. You have one action set piece in Catching Fire. The second one, you have a handful of action set pieces, but, you know, it's mostly about the media. Um, and My the opinion, fourth I, one, I think... You know, you you have a series of action set pieces, but but it took you it took you three movies to get there. I think the the best way to put it is that Mockingjay Part One holds up even better uh, on a second viewing once you really understand kind of where the pieces all fell in the in the place, why it's paced the way it is, and where everything sort of falls and you can look back and you can kind of see the bigger journey to get there. So I have one final question here before we move on to Mockingjay part two and thusly to the end of the podcast. Um, And I want to ask it now instead of at the end of the show. Um, Now, obviously one of the attractions to the Hunger Games uh, movies is the, is the love story, the lack of a better phrase between Katniss and PETA. Um, it was the same attraction in Twilight and, you know, any, any one of these YA novels, I'm sure if you're aiming it towards girls, a romance is, sure, is surely a piece of it you're going to want to feature. Um, but the political undertones, the use of media, the commentary on media, the commentary on the hell of war and, the, and what it does to people, um, child abuse, there are a lot of heavy themes going on here in the Hunger Games series of movies, and I'm just wondering, in your opinion, because I'm at a loss to be, I'm, I'm genuinely asking if you have an opinion on the matter. What in the hell's the attraction for girls in this? Like, I know tons of, I know tons of adult women. I'm not questioning. They are, you know, of sound mind and body and can appreciate things on multiple levels. But this was not aimed at adult women. This was yet another thing that adult women glommed on and stole from the from you know from the teenage girls, but that's what it was aimed well, at. 
And I don't okay, understand what these happening. Me, okay, allow me to just kind of not pick my words too carefully and just speak from the heart. From the heart. Um, first off, you talked about a lot of the hellacious themes. And, okay, you know what? I am going to go ahead and make a comparison. Fuck, I'm going to go ahead and do it because you assholes that I addressed at the top of the show last time seem to want to do it. So, yes, just this once, sit the fuck down, shut the fuck up, open your noise hole, and choke this down. It is thematically deeper than Battle Royale. In Battle Royale, all you have basically is just a simple theme theme of, oh, the gosh darn kids won't go to school and they're fucking up our universe. Okay, let's make them fight each other to the death. Okay, that's about deep as, as deep as the actual themes and subtext and undercurrents get in that movie. You have a fairly simple premise. You get the kids to the mall there fairly quickly. Once the kids are at the mall, there's lots of choppy, choppy, shooty, shooty, stabby, stabby, you people are fucking, you little shits are fucking monsters. And there's lots of blood, happy, happy, fun, happy, happy, super fun, good time feeling. That's about it. In this movie, yes, you have Suzanne Collins being inspired by, as we said before, a combination of a steady glut of reality television meshed together with pretty much pretty mu- pretty much an utter onslaught, a force feeding of Iraqi war coverage. So yes, thematically it is a layered piece about how the media can oftentimes both play a role in escalating, shaping, and occasionally even trivializing deadly conflict and social justice. You have that aspect of it. But then, more pointedly, what you asked me about was you asked me why it is that young women especially really gravitate uh, toward this series. And I have I have a theory, and it's my hope that I'm not going to insult anybody along the way. If I do, I'm sorry, but this is just my outside looking in perspective as a as a penis creature, as you know, having having opposed chromosomes and having a dingle dongle. Um, I think it has to do a lot with the fact that. Katniss is, number one, a very noble, self-sacrificing woman who puts herself, we, we mustn't forget, in this position in the first place in order to save her little sister. It wasn't to become a martyr. It wasn't to become a hero. It wasn't to become a revolutionary. And in fact, it's very frank in noting that those are all roles that she accepts very reluctantly, carry steep unthinkable prices for her right up to the end of the movie, right up to the point that when she is holding her daughter at the end of it and she's smiling at watching PETA playing with their son, she's telling this infant, I'm still haunted by this. This has never left me. 
It's never going to leave me. I'm going to carry the things I did and the things I saw for the rest of for the rest of my for the rest of my life. But in the end, there are worse things that I could have seen and done and had to and had to and had to bear in a world that I would have brought you brought you into had I not done those things. And it's said with a smile and a loving look. But at the same time, you can look at her and you can see within, beneath the surface that she's strong but not invincible. It's realistic because she's admirable not because it exacted a toll and she was able to shrug it off, but because she's able to keep dealing with it day after day after day after day. And it's the fact that she's still wounded by it and still just a little bit just a little bit damaged that makes her relatable because that I think is the problem you have sometimes with a lot of would-be female role models that come up in that come up in the media and that is the fact there's too much of an effort to portray them as being invincible and it's combined with feeling a need to lampshade the she's a strong, independent woman, she don't need no man factor, and to not ever portray them as as, as vulnerable or or affected or damaged by anything by anything around them. It goes over the top. That's not relatable because that's not the way it works in real life. It's not the way it works when you experience something that changes you, that remolds you, that uh, that shifts you. That's not the way it happens with ordinary things that people deal with every day, like divorce or addiction or the death of loved ones or loss or loss of a job, or estrangement from a parent. So when you look at some of those roles, you look at them and you're forced to go, that leaves me incredibly, inescapably vulnerable and still sneaks up on, sneaks up on me when I least expect it. So how the hell am I supposed to believe that you're a, that that this woman is going to be all greedy, grinny, jokey, jokey, wink, 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 nudge, nudge after she just, I don't know, saved a planet or stopped the, or stopped the apocalypse or defeated uh, a godlike otherworldly being to save, to save the earth. Why in the hell would anybody believe that? That's why I believe that... Were I to one day change my mind about having children and have a daughter, I would absolutely hope that she would look up to fictional heroines like someone like, say, Ellen Ripley in Alien, someone like Katniss Everdeen. If we're talking comics, someone like Barbara Gordon who demonstrates not invincible strength, but the kind of strength 
that comes from life trying to bury you six feet under and you're demonstrating a, a willingness to keep getting back up even if you know it means you're going to get knocked down again or you might get knocked backwards or you might get up limping and bruised and bleeding. It's why for all the cynical, ridiculous bullshit that she gets for the way that she handled her first career loss. Do I believe that Ronda Rousey is still a wonderful role model for young women? If anything, now more so than ever. Because she was able to come clean and admit that, yeah, she handled it badly. Or maybe not just badly, but that it affected her deeply. It's not weakness to openly to openly talk about being depressed about something that that is your whole life to admit that you didn't handle something as well as well as you could have and to be honest about about that and to not be disingenuous that isn't weakness um I think that for a lot of young women who are going through formative years in their lives, they haven't had a lot that they've gone through that have shaped them in quite those ways. Um, a lot of You have a lot of adult and middle-aged women that by a certain age, uh, they're pretty secure in who they are. They're at the very least secure, if not happy. And so instead of perhaps gravitating toward YA models with characters who can perhaps provide a bit of a bit of a compass a bit of an inspirational blueprint um, yeah you, you see more of gravitating but don't know what the fuck that noise was um uh, just kind of escapism and and fantasy and something a little more idealistic because it's not really an identity issue with them. Um, it, it's why, uh, yeah, if, if you were to break it down to a three-way triple threat, three-way dance of death among, y, among YA role models in terms of who can really instill um, and perhaps uh, resonate with some positive, with some positive qualities. Uh, yeah, by all means, I will take Hermione Granger or Katniss Everdeen over fucking Bella Swan any goddamn day of the week. Um, and yeah, you know what? Uh, uh, allow me, allow me to just uh, be able to come at me, bro, to any other listeners. Um, who want to throw out characters from any of several John Green novels. Okay. Um, yeah, if we're going with the wrestling metaphor, yeah, Margot Roth Spiegelman can come and try, can come and try a little run-in uh, that is so misguided and so inept that it'll end up about like that time that Sean Stasiak decided he was going to try to jump Stone Cold Steve Austin and just ended up running headlong into William Regal's suit of armor while Austin and Regal just looked at him for a second and then resumed their conversation. Um, 
Because I, I, I'm sorry, John Green novels do not hold up well past a certain age or on a second or further reading, like at all. Um, it's also kind of why I like Jennifer Lawrence, too, in terms of the fact that she is very blunt. She is very frank. She's flawed, does not try to portray, portray herself otherwise. And as an actress, I've made no bones on the show before about how I really admire certain female performers who, even if they maybe don't have the sharpest acting chops in a traditional sense, in an action movie they're at least committed to earning their own stripes, uh, doing as many of their own stunts as possible, carrying off the physicality to as much of an extent as they can. Um, Best examples of this I can think of, uh, Linda Hamilton in uh, the first two Terminator movies. Uh, Ellen Ripley in the first two, in the, well, no, actually I'll say in all three Alien movies. Um, we don't talk about the fourth one for a reason. Um, uh, in a more modern sense, that list gets a whole lot shorter to the point that unfortunately, although I don't think much of her as an actress, I got to give Mila Jovovich uh, credit for this. Uh, in most of the Resident Evil movies, she's doing her own. She's doing her own stuff. She's bruising her, herself up. Uh, you know, she's she's not giving her her stand-ins or stunt women much of a much of a chance to earn their to earn their money. Um, I I like that because it's it's an authenticity. Um, it is something you can kind of look up to, whereas on the other hand, you've got like Olivia Munn playing playing Psylocke, and it, it doesn't take take a genius to pretty to pretty much figure it out. Oh, okay, yeah, you you cast the model because she's going to look pretty on the cover of Max. Um, so, I don't know. That 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 was that was a nice little rant, little ramble. But I think it comes down to authenticity more than more than anything else, believability, relatability, and just simply the fact that if if you're a younger woman and you're watching Jennifer Lawrence as Katniss Everdeen you can feel drawn into that. And even if you can't relate to the exact circumstances, you connect with it more on an emotional level um, than perhaps someone who would be a little bit better suited by watching, oh, I don't know, fucking Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> which which one, of my, one of my closest friends in the world, Heather Miller-Smith, Hey Heather, how you doing? Um, once described to me as mommy porn, <laughs> and I love it. That was the first time I had ever heard I had ever heard the word. But from the moment she said it, I it didn't take me long to understand. Okay, yeah, knowing what I know about what the series is about, yeah, I kind of see what you mean there. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm just going to attack the, uh, the, the the big points here uh, for Mockingjay Part 2. 
this is the final assault on the Capitol, uh, of which Katniss was not necessarily meant to be a part. She was meant to be minimized and marginalized, and uh, at this point in the future, uh, Goyne is uh, afraid that the rebels will, will George Washington her into the presidency, which is not something that she wants. Uh, she wants to maintain control. She wants to continue to be president, and later on, this will pay off in the movie. Uh, however, uh, Katniss is on a mission to kill President Snow, and she will not be uh, she, she will not be detained any longer. So she ends up sneaking into the war zone. At which point, she is told, "All right, since you're already here, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to set you up, and we're going to continue to run propaganda footage. So we'll have you following the army. The army goes in." does its thing, you'll, you'll film footage behind them so that you can stay relatively safe. And we say relatively because the capital is filled with pods, uh, landmines, dangerous apparatus, the kinds of things you would find in a video game. Um, the famously, the one that's in the trailer is the, is the hot tar, but there's machine guns, there's, a va- there's some sort of vaporizing laser uh, later on. And they have to use uh, a holographic map to avoid all this, which they don't. <laughs> they run right into all of them. Um, they also get PETA attached to the group, who is kind of okay, but kind of not. And at one point uh, is divorced from reality very, very, uh, very, very quickly and tries to kill uh, Katniss one more time. In any case, uh, they end up going into... The sewers, they are then chased by the xenomorphs from aliens. <clears throat> I really thought that's what, that's what I was going to see. I mean, I know that that's not really what they were, but they might as well have been. They moved like them. They acted like them. Those the whole nine yards there. It was essentially uh, a bunch of people dressed up in, you know, in vinyl fetish gear, mimicking the xenomorphs from aliens. Moving on. Uh, they kill, much like an alien, they kill half the group. Um, they end up going, uh, they end up being uh, hidden by one of the cat people from uh, the Broadway musical Cats. And uh, Gail and Katniss dress up as refugees when, um, when President Snow says all the children and all the people can come be at the mansion uh, during this final assault for safety. Uh, and doing, uh, while that's happening, they are attacked. Um, at the end of all things, uh, Coin orders a bombing of the Capitol's children, and then a second bombing, which ends up killing Katniss's sister. So why does Katniss have a grudge <laughs> against the president? Well, uh, she may have pur- she may have purposely killed the sister. Um, her and uh, it's a, Katniss and President Snow have a one-on-one conversation. Where President Snow says, huh, all this time I thought you were the real enemy. Turns out we were both wrong. Fancy that. Um, the uh, president says, uh, I'd like to be president for just a little bit longer. How does, in, how does uh, forever sound? And while we're at it, let's have, it, let, let, let's have a symbolic hunger games with Capitol's children. Katniss says, I'm, I'm good with this as long as I get to kill President Snow. Uh, she gets her bow and arrow. There's a big ceremony, and she proceeds to shoot the president. And God bless him, Donald Sutherland, in his, in his best performance ever, laughs hysterically while the masses tear him to pieces. Fantastic. Uh, she is then arrested. 
Uh, Plutarch sends her a letter through Hamish, of which he says, well, I kind of figured that was going to happen. When things die down, you'll be pardoned and can go home, which she does. She goes home and screams at the cat and has quite the conniption fit about the sister and all of that. Um, she starts to adjust to life post uh, the revolution. Peter comes to live with her. After a time, they are a couple, presumably, well, they're already married, but presumably they are in a real life relationship with, uh, and they have real life children. And there we leave them uh, happily ever after with uh, thoughts of trauma in their mind. And that is Mocking, <laughs> Mocking J Part 2. And, you know, and as far as a movie where they're trying to minimize the sort of Lord of the Rings big feature big battle sequences, uh, but still give you a satisfying, we're finally going to take it to the capital kind of ending. I thought they handled that well. I mean, this, again, if you will, I once criticized Harry Potter for not giving me the kind of ending that I expected. And I have tried to stop doing that, especially since I've been roundly criticized by some of our uh, friends and fans for criticizing things that don't end the way that I want them to. Um, just why I've given up on, on on criticizing wrestling, but that's a whole other story. Um, so I, I roundly criticized Harry Potter for uh, not giving me the ending that I thought I deserved, and since I don't like to do that sort of thing anymore, sort of just appreciated what the Hunger Games was trying to do and did it accomplish it or didn't it, and I thought it did. Um, this wasn't trying to be Lord of the Rings. This wasn't trying to be. Uh, anything but what it was, and it was, you know, and, it, and at the end of the day, this was still about Katniss, uh, which it was. Um, she gets revenge on who ends up being the ultimate villain in the thing, uh, and she ends up not murdering Snow. I have to say, one of the things I liked about Mockingjay Part 2 comes out of the dialogue, and nobody is mustache twirly, um, as we like to say, Robert Winfrey and I. Nobody... There are no, there are no tied dandles to the train tracks kinds of villains in these movies. You can see where Donald Sutherland's President Snow is coming from. In this movie, more so than in the, in the previous three. In the previous three, he comes across as a bit dastardly. You know, I'm going to kill your whole family if you don't do what I say. Okay, well, you know, that, that's not a nice person. Um, but this one, when he's talking about, in the last movie to a, to, to a degree, where he's talking about, do you really want war? You know, is this is this what you want out of life? The, and the, the the talking about keeping the peace in the aftermath of whatever caused the dystopian future in the first place, and the you know, and feeling like, hey, look, the people that are the capital are the ones that brought the peace and brought the stability and gave you all the ability to live your lives. We deserve what we you know, we deserve the world that we created. I I saw his point. Now, I don't want to live underfoot, and I don't want to live in tyranny, so, of course, you know, you support the side that is ostensibly freedom, but there's something to be said for, we brought you peace when there was anarchy. Aren't we owed a bit, aren't we owed just a small bit of, uh, uh, of, sort I'm looking for here, uh, and, you know, allegiance. So, that being said, uh, Julianne Moore's character, uh, believable. I thought Donald Sutherland's character, uh, very believable, very interesting, very layered. Um, you know, we've already said, I think, what we need to say about Jennifer Lawrence. 
the action sequences I thought were fine. Um, it's kind of it, it's hard to get excited about them because it's like okay, I haven't seen stuff like this before. It's good. It was done well enough. Um, like I said, this wasn't supposed to be a rock'em sock'em, you know, adventure ride. This isn't Transformers: Age of Extinction, one of the greatest movies ever. Uh, <laughs> this is a little more subdued than all of that. So overall, uh, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. I'm going to give you your piece and just say, you know, I um, I thought it was a I thought it was a good end to the series. Uh, to what it was they were trying to do. And, you know, I thought the action set pieces were fun. You know what? By and large, it was exactly everything that it needed to be. And that is, it was a two-hour-plus march toward the big confrontation that we needed. And if, like me, you haven't read the books, you were maybe just a little bit surprised at how it turned out in terms of that Katniss, really kind of got what she wanted in both senses. Uh, she brought down President, President Coyne um, in a fashion that was predictable from the moment of the big sit-down with all the victims. And at the same time, there was the moment of, I don't have to kill you and add to the death toll that's going to be on my conscience and in my nightmares for the rest of my life, President Snow. But ain't nothing says I have to save you either. Right. And and she just leaves him to be dealt to be dealt with by his people. And by and large, he's okay with that. Um, Loyalty. That's the word I was looking for. Go ahead. What did you say? Loyalty. That's the word I was looking for. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Um. So in a way, he dies feeling like, fuck it, I still kind of won. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't really defeated. She gets revenge for the, you know, for the sister being murdered in cold blood. Um, and, she, and she gets revenge on Snow without having to necessarily bloody her hands. She comes away sort of a, a tragic hero. Uh, she really does. An, an imperfect, tragic hero who survives, who survives the day, who come away in, in any sense, in any sense whatsoever, unscathed by what she's been through, but who still feels like she's received uh, her, her, res, her resolution. Uh, um, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that word terribly badly. I've never exactly got the entire thing. Um, is that Allville back there? Uh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm cooking while I'm talking about the Hunger Games here. <laughs> um, but it's it's still uh, a satisfying. It doesn't leave us with really that many that many unanswered questions. It's a place where we feel, as you know, readers in the book in the book's case, or in this case, the viewing audience, like oh, we're okay with just stepping away and just leaving them to lead their lives. So. 
don't know. Hey. It was. It, it, it's not the kind of resolution you normally you normally expect. It's not the exactly all tied together. Everything um, explained explained it in a perfectly neat package, happy ending that some pe- that some people might like, but. Lord of the Rings doesn't necessarily do that. I mean, Frodo tra- spends spends twelve hours uh, in film time walking to Mount Doom to destroy this ring, and in the end, succumbs to it. You know, he's not the one that destroys the ring in the book or in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it. The, the, and I think I think there's room to tell those kinds of stories where 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 at the end the hero kind the heroes you know falls and. There's a resolution, but there's a resolution that's completely out of the hero's hands. Um, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Also, this wasn't the kind of high drama that you know something like Lord of the Rings was, or even to a degree Harry Potter. Uh, you know, where you spent yeah. so much time with these characters, and they had built, you know, and and the world that they inhabited had gone so far off the cliff uh, by the end of it. So this was a neat, this was this was a neat little collection of uh, a neat little story that was wrapped up um, about as good as, as I think it could have. I would t- I would say this: Wh- whatever you thought of the Hunger Games books, and I have no idea what to think of them. I haven't read them, as you may have heard. Um, I think the best thing about the movies is the performances. Whatever else you can say about the plot or about how they were divided or whatever else, nobody turns in a bad performance. I may not like the character, but Josh Hutchinson does a fine job of playing the little Weasley bastard. Um, (laughs) So, you know, every, everybody gives a command performance here. And I think it, I think it elevates what some might, you know, say is is a silly series of books. And I think that's as good a place as any to end the uh, discussion on this. Uh, final words, Sean? It's fun. By all means, go see it. I mean, when the worst thing that I can say is that Wes Bentley was Wes Bentley and Lenny Kravitz was Lenny, was about what you would expect from Lenny Kravitz. That's, Command performance. Command that's, performance by yeah, Lenny that, Kravitz. Yeah, if, if, that's your, if that's your low point of the movie is that two people turned in about the performances that you would expect expect from them between the combined about God, what would it what would it be? Maybe if you tabulated it up about forty five total minutes of screen time between two movies, uh between the two of them. Yeah. Um you're ahead on points. If if that if that's like the absolute valley of your movie, and again, because it's something that bears saying, do not be turned off just because some jag-off, neck-beard, fedora-wearing, hipster douchebag Japanophile insists that the whole movie falls apart because it's too much like Battle Royale, and that's the only complaint they can muster. That's the point where you have to ask, okay... And what, what is bad about what is bad about the about the movies? What is patently bad about about them? Uh, it's it's kind of like something that you and I were talking about earlier in terms of 
you know, every time you bring up The Matrix Reloaded, the one overriding complaint that everybody comes up with else about the movie as a whole is uh, the underground rave scene. Blow it out your ass. You let almost two hours of movie be ruined for be ruined for you by an admittedly pointless about five to ten minute se- sequence. Eat so uncomfortable. Eat a dick. <laughs> if that was your big that was your biggest problem with it, really you couldn't come up with absolutely anything else that you got hung up on with that. As no, a series overall as a series <laughs> overall, and I'll keep this as brief as I possibly can. What I would say is movies tend to present the problem of having to put a lot of material comfortably into about two or three hours of space. Uh, it's a lot like well, it's a lot like if you ever played one of the Resident Evil video games, having to constantly rearrange your attache case so you can fit more gear in there. Um, you rearrange, you're re-vertically aligning this, moving that moving that around, shifting this, reorganizing that to the point where it's full and you've got to start dropping items out entirely. It's very tricky when it comes to to adaptation because you're bound to leave out something that's going to leave somebody upset or you're going to harp harp on the sensibilities of somebody who thinks that you turned something vertically when you should have turned it horizontally. My opinion, I think that overall... This could have been a fascinating series as adapted to an episodic television or web show. Um, I think it would have made a pretty damn good little comic if you had chosen to lay it out, lay it out that way. Uh, quite frankly, I think it's a missed opportunity that there has never been a video game series dedicated to it. Um, if if at least just a brief episodic one, maybe not maybe not perhaps a, a point and click style game style game because I don't think the Telltale style adventure game motif um, and framework would really lend itself well uh, to a lot of the action, but something that was maybe akin to say well Tomb Raider possibly uh, might have been a might have been a good setup. Uh, because those would have allowed a lot more freedom to not have to cut so many things, to not have to rush, to pace things in a manner that's, that a bit better parallels the books. But that being said, as movies go, they are all four incredibly well executed. I would definitely recommend seeing all four of them at least once. And... In fact, I would even go so far as to say it's a series that were all four movies available perhaps on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu. Uh, They would be four of those movies that I would turn to as kind of default options if I just needed something on in the background while I worked and I couldn't decide what else to watch. Uh, They're fortunately, obviously, all available on DVD and Blu-ray. So if you haven't seen them, uh, take them. Set aside uh, uh, a Saturday or something when you don't have any have anything to do, and sit down and give them and give them a watch. If nothing else, being YA adaptations, they're certainly suitable for almost all ages. And yeah, that's about it. All right. Uh, so so ends our look at the Hunger Games next week. 
May is baseball month for no apparent reason. <laughs> we, well, um, because, well, because because the major league season has started hitting full swing, and because okay, we sure. well well I mean realistically the best months to devote to baseball movies are going to be either April when the season opens or October when it's drawing to a close with the World Series and. As it happens, yeah, April we decided was going to be Hunger Games and Offsad Prince Die. Fair enough. Um, so next week, Metal Hammer of Doom, we're gonna it's Rob's choice. We're doing Vector or Terminal Redux. Uh Rob Winfrey and I on Wednesday will be reviewing Civil War and we will be back here on the middle on the middle on the long road to ruin looking at the Bad News Bears trilogy. Uh, the week after that uh, on Tuesday, Metal Hammer of Doom, Hate Breed, The Concrete Confessional. On Wednesday, Money Monster. And on uh, Thursday, Long Road to Ruin, our second show for the month of May, Major League. And I think that's it for the month of May. We won't be back until uh, after that, until my birthday, June 2nd. I'll be 40 years old. I'm going to spend my birthday with Sean Comer, everybody. Um and I'm going to spend it talking Yo, about the you. What was that? I'm, I, I guess I am your equivalent to Mick, to Mick Foley spending the night he won his first WWE championship uh, in a hotel with the Blue Meanie. Yeah, something along those lines. So we're going to discuss <laughs> X-Men, X2, United, X3, The Apology. Um, that'll be after our review of X-Men Apocalypse and the second uh, part of our Motorhead retrospective. Um, also in June, Long Road to Ruin, we'll be looking at the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live-action trilogy, Whoa. otherwise known as Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go. Um, and we'll have a cast of thousands on that podcast, because literally everybody I know wants to be on it. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so that's it right now. That's, that's all the podcasts we've got going on. Go, go into the archives, check out. Uh, our review of a terrible album, <laughs> the Rob Zombie's Electric Acid, Witch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, check out our movie reviews. We've got, we've got reviews for The Huntsman, Winch's War uh, in there. So uh, go ahead and look at all that. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. It was a lot of fun talking about this. Um, it's definitely one of the nice things about this podcast is it gives me an opportunity to watch movies that I might not have paid any attention to. Uh, so with that being said, we'll see you next week. Be well, be safe, and behave.